0: Episode 86, Dr. Cliff Bluestein, CEO of Appus Health.
1: Uh, what they really wanted from us was to uh, bring to them solutions. The current structure of our organization was around technologies.
0: I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, go to markraben.com slash Mistake take 2 for show notes links and more go to markgraven.com/mistake86 please follow rate and review if you liked the episode please share it on social media as always thanks for listening and we're joined today by uh, Cliff Bluestein he is the president and ceo of a company Appis Health they're a medical device company he is an adjunct professor at the NYU Stern School of Business and he is also a urologist, so it's quite an interesting background. And uh, Cliff, thank you so much for being
1: here today. How are you? Great, thanks for having me here, Mark.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's my pleasure. And you know, we'll dive right in. I think this will trigger a lot of good conversation. Um, Cliff, what would you say is your favorite mistake?
1: You know, my favorite mistake was really at a prior company where I, I was charged at leading a large uh, consultancy practice. And when I came into the practice from the outside, you know, ultimately you want to evaluate um, your teams and see what you're doing. And you often look in uh, multiple areas to see that the strategy structure, people, process, technology are are all aligned. And it became very clear, having uh, gone out on a roadshow to speak with our customers, that uh, what they really wanted from us as a company was to uh, bring to them solutions. And that the current structure of our organization was around technologies, you know in particular, uh, you know specific types of electronic health record, you know like an epic program or Cerner program. And we really spent, You know, ultimately the next, you know, three to six months thinking through what are solutions? How can we deliver them? What does that look like in the marketplace? What kind of things where our customers really value and, and what are the people that we have in order to deliver and execute on that? We spent um, a lot of time actually looking at every individual within the organization, which was uh, no small feat because we're talking about hundreds of people. And we ultimately decided and and figured out what we thought would be a really good composition of teams to deliver solutions. And really over a, a period of several months, we figured out the new organizational structure, the new solution stacks. We, we then got uh, engagement or we thought we had engagement of all of the leaders to to really drive this and and we thought through what the sales pitches were going to be and and what was the information they needed. how would we message this to our teams and our people and, and then really over the course of a weekend, we ultimately then switched about half of the team's managers uh, to, to to new teams and and had our all new solutions to go to the market. And, you know, we immediately expected that uh, the teams would get together and start working on figuring out, you know, how they're going to deliver solutions, what are the capabilities and and what that would look like. And what we found was um, business as usual, really nothing changed. And and within the first, you know, couple of weeks, uh, only some of the groups really started to come back with really interesting solutions uh, to the problems that we were trying to solve. And, uh, what was more interesting was <clears throat> we, we started to get feedback from a lot of our top performers and a lot of our top performers actually came back and uh, were not happy uh, with their new managers. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting problem where all of a sudden we thought we were going to go around and build some great solutions and, and we're going to have uh, great teams that are really engaged. And, and we started to find some really, really unhappy people. Uh, what we learned from this was that um, a lot of the managers that we thought were gonna be able to be agile and change actually really didn't have any intention of changing at all. And and many of the people that were our top performers actually got frustrated when they were put with new managers who weren't really trying to drive, drive the change kind of a an interesting problem for for an organization that you're trying to turn around to make sure from a strategic perspective that that we're going to be aligned with what the market's want so if there was a clear change in the marketplace we had to address it and and either we changed or or the business probably would not thrive in, into the future
0: hmm. so it seems like there's there's maybe two different levels of what was going on there related to um, organizational structure. Some of this might have been before your time coming in, but, you know, why did things get to a point where there was that um, misalignment? Was it because of evolution in the marketplace and, and, and there was need to adapt or was there a kind of a deeper misunderstanding of we have technologies versus customers want solutions? That's a, that's kind of a common challenge.
1: You no, know, it's a great question. I- I think that the structure of the organization was consistent with how the work is delivered. So, normally, when you're delivering your solutions, you're delivering individual technologies, or the skill sets that you need come from certain technology groups or families. And it made sense to organize from a delivery perspective in, into those solution stacks. I think the, the market very clearly changed. And you know what we heard from our customers, for example, was uh, if you look at electronic health records, you know there are many platforms out there that hospital systems use, uh, Epic, Cerner, Express Scripts, and so on. And when we went to our customers, many of them said, listen, Cliff, uh, we use more than one platform. We're not only using one solution. So if you're going to come to help us, you need to be able to deliver solutions that understand the complexity of our organizations and the fact that we have multiple different EMR platforms running uh, across our organization and how do we manage that? And, and, And that, partly is a a market force that drove us to to really try and think differently. So I think it was just a a natural evolution of of where it was going. I I also think it's a contrast between um, how you sell uh, and how you deliver. And I think that there's often a contrast in many organizations between really the sales arm and and the delivery arm. And in consultancy, usually the sales arm and the delivery arm are one and the same.
0: Uh-huh. And was there an issue? Um, is it a matter of you know, the customer was wanting a single point of contact and they were having to interact with different uh, sales or support contacts for those different technologies as opposed to having you know, something that seemed more integrated from their perspective?
1: Yeah, I think that's certainly one part of it. I think, you know. Many organizations find it very hard to deal with larger, um, complex organizations because they don't know who to call to get a a solution. I think uh, many companies like, like my prior one actually had really good account management. So you had an account manager that was supposed to be the point person, but they're usually still bringing in other teams. Uh, that are bringing uh, the the products to the market to solve whatever problems they happen to have. So I do think that part of it is it has to do with how do you interact um, with, with a single point of contact. It's just sure. easy.
0: Yeah. So then I think the second part, it seems, of the scenario, the first part was, okay, well, how did it get to be that way? And then there was recognition that it has to change. When I heard you say, you know, um, nothing changed and people were unhappy, is this, something that could be framed as some people might call a change management issue. Like, was it the wrong solution or was, was, was there something about the approach that didn't get people on board, whether that was the managers or um, those top performers?
1: You you know, many times, many times people talk about culture, you know, eating strategy for lunch. I actually think that that's kind of a misnomer. And and my experience has been, and and this was a perfect learning example of it, it's all about the people. And I think ultimately there are uh, many individuals out there that are very comfortable with change and that are able to manage through in a very agile way um, all of the different factors that are coming into play. And I think, frankly, there are other individuals that really just are not comfortable with that. I think that what we learned very quickly, fortunately, was to be able to identify those individuals that would be able to change. And we very quickly promoted up or enhanced the responsibilities for those individuals that were very comfortable with change. And we really either demoted or changed the role for those individuals that didn't want to change. And it's not that they're not good people. It's just everyone has a, a different skill set and a different capability. So we needed to change. We know that we needed to change. We found the people that could help us execute on that and then promoted them up. And I think that was able to fix a, a lot of the challenges that, that you brought up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your assessment. Um, you know, if Somebody is seeming resistant to change. It doesn't mean they're a bad person it's people are, 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 complicated. Change is a, a process. Um, as, uh, as some would say, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I want to ask a few questions about, um, you know, being a, a physician, being a urologist and, you know, I'm just kind of thinking of in, in my work in healthcare, I've been exposed to people who, um, are trying to focus folk on folks. They're trying to help patients change behaviors for different reasons. And, um, that's easier for some people, to change behaviors from you know, things uh, related to things that affect their health or their medical condition. Were, were there any lessons learned or things that you can think of more broadly in medicine and, and treating patients when it comes to helping patients accept and embrace change?
1: The answer is patient engagement is one of the most difficult challenges in all of healthcare. I think this is a problem that uh, a lot of people have been trying to solve for. I think at at my current company, Apple's Health, our our approach to patient engagement is that we believe we need to meet patients uh, wherever they want to meet with us, and the answer to that is to try and think through a truly customer-centric view. I think much of healthcare was structured, frankly, from a physician perspective, so how do we deliver healthcare from either the hospitals, uh, efficiency or the physician's physiciancy or the care provider's efficiency as opposed to truly thinking about how does the patient want to interact with us and and so we do what's called omnichannel you know marketing we send text messages to patients we create chat bots we send them emails we do uh, video conferencing we do in-person visits Uh, And we try and meet them wherever and however they want to to meet with us. And and we believe that, you know, you may get 5% of the people through text messaging. You may get another five to 10 from an app. There are some others that frankly just want to see you in person. They don't want to talk to a machine. They don't want a chat bot. They don't want to go online and get answers there. There are others that are happy to speak with an AI driven chat bot. And so I think healthcare really needs to change and, and until we change and become more customer centric, um, we will not get the engagement that, you know, companies like Facebook, like most of the banks do today and, and, and many other companies.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, it might help, um, you know, if you can provide a little bit of context about Appis Health, and like, you know, what are um, the products or maybe we can frame it in terms of solutions. Cause you talk about that difference. Like, you know, who, who is the customer? Is it, uh, who you know? Who's purchasing this? Is it the physicians, the patients? It's it's probably complicated.
1: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, nothing in healthcare is is easy. Everything is complex. But we are an FDA cleared medical device uh, for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis with temporary improvement in pain and function. <clears throat> so. We are, our our strategy to the market was to get um, payer coverage. Uh, Once we had payer coverage, we then went out to create what I would say is our distribution network or those healthcare providers, traditionally physical therapists, orthopedic surgeons, pain doctors that um, administer the therapy. And really our therapy is a a shoe-like device that gets um, these pods underneath it that get uh, based upon gait parameters customized to an individual patient and then our our real consumer is is the patient who has knee osteoarthritis if you you look at that demographic or that market you know it tracks very similar with knee osteoarthritis so roughly 60 percent women 40 percent uh men uh the target age is roughly you know 59 to 60 years of age um since that's when the the incidence of of uh, knee osteoarthritis is really at its greatest.
0: Yeah. And so um, is how, how do you frame or what were the lessons learned from the previous company about framing all of this as clearly there is technology, but then it seems like from a solution standpoint, the um, th- thing in terms of uh, patient benefit, what were, were some of the lessons learned in terms of kind of communicating and getting acceptance of um, something new on the market?
1: Yeah, it's all about what's in it for me. I think at the end of the day, um, people want to know that whatever it is you're doing is going to be of value to them. Our our product, um, they really find valuable because uh, it helps to alleviate their pain and and improve their function. And, And many of our patients have suffered for an average for six to eight years with knee pain, they have often tried and and failed other treatment modalities like injections and, and physical therapy and pain medication. So when they have something new that they can try, that's, you know, non-surgical they like that as a solution. And if it, if it works, which it does um, uh, then, then they get real benefit out of that. So unless you can figure out a way to, to, um, drive value to the end user; they're they're not going to want to use it.
0: Yeah, and as you framed it, you know the the what's in it for me um, that that clear benefit seems important. Whether it's maybe something medical, or um, even back to the story that you were telling, the what the what's in it for me. If we were to say, um, "Hey, do you want this new technology on your foot?" People might say, "Well, no, I don't want that." What they want is less pain and the other benefits that come with it. Um, that seems clear. Um, organizational issues, like you were describing, I wonder, was there a clear what's in it for me for those managers or for those performers uh, in terms of you know, embracing that change that they were, that they were thrown into?
1: You know, it's a great question that we didn't probably contemplate at the time. I, I think at the time, honestly, we were really more focused on what did our consumer want Uh, And I think one of the mistakes we made in in implementing this was probably not really addressing that issue as well as we should have uh, and making sure that they understood what the value to them was. And I don't think we clearly articulated that either. I think from our perspective, we were looking at it as business unit leaders as we need to improve sales. We need to improve utilization of our consultancy. We need to get the solutions out to the marketplace uh, and that you should want to do this because if you don't do this, you're not going to have a job. And while that is a what's in it for me, it really is not ultimately the kind of driver that's going to be effective in in influencing uh, others and and winning hearts and minds. So I I think that that probably was uh, an additional mistake that, that we did at the time in terms of not clearly articulating the what's in it for them as well as we should have and probably could have.
0: Well, you know, thank you for sharing that, you know, that, that reflection on that. Um, you know, and think of, yeah, it, it's great to be customer focused, but, you know, part of what I hear you saying is that there are other stakeholders and, and people we need to have um, accepting, if not enthusiastic of that change so it can benefit the customers and therefore the organization. Well, yeah.
1: yeah, I think every, you know, One of the biggest challenges is focus. You know, when you're an organization and you're trying to make change, you can really only focus on so many things. And one of the challenges is how do you find the right balance uh, between all of the different stakeholders because no matter what initiative you're trying to do you're always touching uh, multiple stakeholders and and it's hard to focus on all of them all of the time doesn't mean you don't try and plan for it um, but but in the in the midst of, of the day-to-day activities you know it's hard to focus on more than you know two to three things and, and do it really well so I think Think you know, while while we could have done that better, you know, it's about balance, right? You can only spend so much time in in moving an organization, and people can really only focus on so many things. So, I think stakeholder management is a really important concept. I think not everyone does it well, and and I think part of the hardest part is to really focus in on who's your most important stakeholder, and then what are the next round of them, and and. What can you do to touch as many as you possibly can, or or at least manage it? Yeah.
0: Um, So I also want to ask. I mean, I want to ask basically the same question, asking you to kind of think of uh, you know two different proverbial hats. Um, First off, as a clinician, and then secondly, as CEO of Appis Health. So you know, with your urologist hat on, thinking as a physician, what are some of your thoughts or reflections? You know, here on the podcast, we talk so much about learning from mistakes, which means, you know, uh, an openness, um, about mistakes. Um, what, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, that, that culture in your experience, um, in medicine?
1: You know, medicine has a history of being extraordinarily um, conservative and some would say, um, Conservative to the point where they struggle to adopt new innovations and technologies and and while the number often changes, they often say the time between when a new technology is is you know started and actually implemented is at least seventeen years, and some people go up or down on that number, but seventeen years is a really long time for adoption of anything i 'm a firm believer that um, if you're not making mistakes, um you're probably not moving aggressively enough. You're probably not taking enough risk. Uh, and and ultimately, you're really hurting yourself in terms of of innovation. You know, Choosing to do nothing is or nothing new is a strategy, and it's rarely a good one. Um, so I, I, I'm a firm believer in making mistakes. I, I tell my team all of the time, you, you know, that, that it's OK to make mistakes. You know, let's identify the mistakes. Let's not lay blame. Let's just figure out why they happened, what happened, how do we fix it going forward, and, and what do we have to learn from it? Because if people are afraid to make mistakes, then they're also afraid to make decisions. And what you really don't want is is to make people afraid to make decisions. So in any organization, what I would say is if you're not making mistakes, that probably means you're not giving the the people on the ground enough uh, ability to make choices and and make decisions on their own and and empowering them. And I think it's really important to empower your teams. I think it's important to identify mistakes. You you asked you know, where does that come from? You know, as a physician, as a surgeon, we used to have something called morbidity and mortality conferences. What a morbidity and mortality conference is, is actually a protected environment. So anything that is disclosed in in a morbidity and mortality conference can't be disclosed in a court of law. What that actually does is that allows you to, Look at something that may not have happened the way you would have liked it to in terms of a surgical outcome, or in other words, a complication. And then, in an open forum, have a conversation with other doctors who are in your field and sometimes outside of your field about, you know, did you make a mistake? What could you have done differently? Did you miss something? Should you have thought of something differently? You know, okay, when it happened, how did you manage it? And did you manage it appropriately? And what would you have done differently after the fact? And I think that that's a a wonderful forum um, to really learn and grow from. And and I think, you know, because I had that experience as a surgical resident, I think I try and emulate that in in the business world as well. You know, hey, what what happened this week? What went wrong? What could we have fixed? You know, how do we move ahead and and not lay blame? And I think because Mm -hmm. of that, you can innovate and move quickly well,
0: I think that's a really important and transferable cultural trait um, you talk about you know the, the M&;M conferences um, and and that open forum in the agile software space people talk about doing retrospectives which I think is you know intended to have a similar um, you know sort of um, in, in the military I think people used phrases like after action review mm-hmm you know, this, this, the similar idea. And, you know, it's just got me thinking of like people who are, let's say in um, a sales environment, software sales, consulting sales, let's say you thought you had some big deal and you end up losing it because they, they went to a competitor or they decided not to move forward at all. It would be interesting to do that same sort of um, M&M review of, you know, kind of a, a blame free, not, not who blew the deal kind of discussion, but, what, ha- what do we think happened? What do we know? What are we learning from that? What are we doing moving forward? That, that seems like an interesting thing that other types of businesses could embrace.
1: You know, we used to actually do that in our consultancy. We actually, when we lost, we'd call up the client and we'd ask if we could do a debrief with them. And say, listen, we know we lost. That's okay. You know, can we actually have an open and honest conversation about what did we do well, what could we have done better, and why did we lose? And and you know, what's important about that is to make sure that you're getting the real answer. You know, many times, you know, because it's easy, they'll just say, "Well, you cost too much." or the other people had a better pitch or a better skill set, I think it's often important to make sure you're asking, you know, the second, the third, the fourth questions to make sure you're really getting to what the problem is. Because I think many times when you do these debriefs, everybody wants to take the easy superficial reason uh, as to why you lost. And, And it's very rarely because your pricing was too much or, or, you know, so it's important to really delve into that because my experience was we never lost because of pricing. If somebody really liked us and they thought we cost too much, they'd call you up and say, you guys cost too much. Yeah, to come down. Yeah. Now, can you come down? And if you come down on your price and you still scope it out, you know, we'll give you this engagement, but you know, you're way too expensive and that was always the solution. So, I always made sure to ask two, three, four clarifying questions to make sure that we got to the the real meat of the matter.
0: Yeah, in in my professional space, we would talk about getting to the root cause or at least digging beneath the surface, and that's why, you know, I distinguished what do we think happened and what do we know? happen. Like, you know, coaches, you know, people who have coached me in problem solving. Um, and you think losing a deal is a, a problem to kick in the problem solving mode. Um, you know, what what do we know and how do we know it? Are we making assumptions versus having real fact? And I, I like what you said about asking those follow-up questions where let's say somebody might say like, well, we thought you weren't a good fit. I don't know what that means, right? So you have to ask follow-ups and and try to get more specific, it seems.
1: Yeah, and and honestly, many times I found our debriefs to complete completely meaningless after a pitch. You know, there are some pitches we said, oh, we nailed it and we weren't even to the next round. And other ones we thought we did a horrible job and somehow we won the deal. So I think it's I think your own impressions of yourselves often isn't the best reflection. That's why I always like to get external people. Um, even when we practiced, we used to practice with um other other groups that had nothing to do with us to see how we came across.
0: Interesting. There's really a, a good, a good lesson there. And, um, before we wrap up, I was going to ask one other follow-up question. You talk about sort of that, um, conservative approach or being slow. I've heard, you know, uh, ballpark 20 years, like you said, so order of magnitude, that same scale. And there are many, many historical examples going back, um, more than 100 years of, um, of, you know, changes that were slow to be embraced. And, you know, I think of the one expression that you hear attributed to medicine, um, first do no harm. And it seems like, you know, that might lead certainly, like as a patient, I want my medical team to be careful. So rushing into some new technology could cause harm. But it seems like there are certain situations where being uh, too slow to embrace or adopt or approve New medications or new technologies could cause harm in a different way. How, what are your thoughts, since I realize you're probably a difficult question, how do you strike that balance, not going too quickly, not going too slow?
1: So, again, as a physician, we all take the Hippocratic Oath, and and we all believe, you know, primum non nocere, you know, at first do no harm. So I, I understand that. I think, you know, if you look at an example in the drug world, there there's two approaches one where you will not approve a drug until you've pretty much tested on animals tested it on small humans done dosing trials then then done it on larger groups and then you've shown that there are no side effects and everything else and it's a very long and expensive process that often costs billions of dollars to bring it to market there's another philosophy that says listen let's bring it to market faster, let's do a little bit less testing, let's do it on humans, Uh, let's make sure that it, you know, at first blush seems to be safe and effective and really do a tremendous amount of post-marketing surveillance. And they're just diametrically opposed points of view, you know, one, you're trying to prevent any harm from happening before you ever bring it to market, which has some advantages and disadvantages versus the other end of the spectrum, which is bring it to market very quickly. And then after you bring it to market, you make sure that it's still safe, you know, and, and there is no right. And there is no wrong answer. I personally have a bias more towards, uh, the, the latter, which is bring it to market faster and and test it very, very closely for any form of post-marketing, problems that arise out of it, because ultimately, you never know in either method um, if there are going to be um, challenges afterwards. And and I'd rather make sure that regardless of the path that's taken, that you're continuing to monitor it very tightly for, for bad outcomes. And I think you also risk adjust it. You know, there are some things that are extraordinarily low risk. So why wouldn't you want to bring it to market very quickly versus some other things like some drugs and, and gene therapy and other things that may be a little bit higher risk of, of having an untoward effect. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, very interesting. So um, our guest today has been Dr. Cliff Bluestein. He is the president and CEO at Appis health And, and Cliff, I want to thank you. I think there's interesting opportunities to kind of think through and connect the dots, your story from sort of enterprise technology, sales and solutions uh, medicine lessons from surgery and um, you know leading a company like you do today so thank you very much for sharing all of that and uh, for being a guest
1: mark thank you very much for having me I appreciate the opportunity
0: thanks again to dr. Cliff Bluestein for being our guest today for show notes links and more go to mark slash mistake 86 and I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.